COVID issue for all women. Hi, Hannah here and welcome to this week's episode of The Sunday Chops. I say this week's episode, there's actually another episode and I maybe might start by describing that to you. If you listen to the podcast that came out on Wednesday, you'd have heard a snippet of an interview that Mick and I did with Carrie Gracie. Yes, Carrie Gracie, she of the equal pay row with the BBC. And when I say an interview we did with her, largely she just talked and we just stared in amazement at how absolutely terrific she is. She was telling us all about that battle for equal pay with the BBC and about her new book, Equal. So when you finish listening to this, I would suggest that you hop on straight over and listen to that. Now, in this chops, I am talking to an equally fierce advocate for women. As you might know, throughout September, which is the start of autumn, we're doing a special series of interviews about the menopause. Do you see what we did there? Mm. That started last week with an interview that Jen did with the author Darcy Steinke about her book, The Flash Count Diary. Now, this week, I am talking to Dr. Anne Henderson, a consultant gynecologist and advocate for women's health rights and really the front of all knowledge on the menopause. I wanted to talk to her about HRT because you may have noticed if you could see beyond all of the headlines that were about Brexit that HRT has popped up quite a lot in the headlines. A, there's a shortage. B, there was an article in The Lancet which linked HRT with breast cancer. I spoke to Dr. Anne about all of those things and a lot more besides. And she actually elicited quite a lot of wow from me, particularly when she was telling me about how few doctors are actually trained in the menopause. So that's what's coming up now. Enjoy. Hi, I am joined on the phone by Dr. Anne Henderson, consultant gynaecologist and women's health advocate. And we are going to be talking about the crisis with HRT. Hello, Anne. Thank you for joining me. Hi, good morning. Perhaps the best place for us to start, considering that we have discovered, really, that people don't know that much about the menopause, is if you could just give us a tiny just nub of what HRT is and what it does. So the menopause is the time in a woman's life when the production of hormones from the ovaries ceases because there are very few, if any, eggs left. And once there is no need for ovulation, the whole hormonal production cycle dwindles and finally ceases. And the time that a woman goes through the menopause is when she has her last menstrual period. What's often under-recognized is that there can be a long lead-up to the menopause, and that's a specific time called the perimenopause. That can last for up to 10 years, classically between the ages of 45 and 55. The standard time for the menopause in developed countries like the UK is 52, but there is this long period of time leading up to that, which can be a, a very problematic time for women, it's often misdiagnosed by GPs and health specialists, gynaecologists and, and so on. And that can be a, a equally as difficult, if not more difficult, than the actual menopause itself. 
So it's those two groups of women, i.e. the perimenopausal group and the menopausal group, who may benefit from HRT. Do we know how many women, roughly, in the country actually take HRT? Worldwide, 12 million. In the UK, the statistics uh, are not completely up to date because obviously data is always collected retrospectively, usually in three to five year groups. So the data that would reflect the uptake in HRT use since the 2015 NICE guidance hasn't yet been released. The NICE guidance was published in November 2015, so it isn't even four years ago. But it is thought that in the region of 12% of women currently in the UK are taking HRT. Wow. Yes, it's at its peak. When I did my research into the menopause with Professor John Stard, and that was back in the, the 80s and the 90s when HRT was at its peak, we estimated that between 20 to 25% of menopausal women were on HRT, so one in four to one in five. That plummeted off the edge of a cliff face in the early 2000s when the the Women's Health Initiative study and the Million Women study from America were published suggesting an increased risk in breast cancer and the usage dropped precipitously to about eight to 10 percent. So there was a huge swing and that has gradually recovered during the, the, the 2000s, but particularly since the positive reviews which were produced in the 2015 NICE guidance. And at the moment, the number of women taking HRT is going up exponentially. Uh, when I talk to fellow specialists, they're all noticing a massive increase in referrals to the clinic, self-referrals, GP referrals, workload, My own workload has probably more than doubled in the last 18 months, and I was already very busy, so that gives you an idea about the the, the uptake. Obviously, we don't know what's going to happen after the the, uh, Lancet paper, which was published three days ago, but certainly at the moment, the numbers of women taking HRT is, is definitely going up exponentially. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack there. So maybe if we could start with the fact that we at Standard Issue have had quite a lot of women get in touch with us to say that they are unable to get hold of their HRT medication because of a national shortage. Now, I know that that is actually not just anecdotal, that is verifiable information, but I wonder if you could tell me how bad that situation is. I think it's sufficiently worrying to be called a crisis. Uh, I, I don't think that is, is being inflammatory or alarmist. I uh, am really struggling to provide HRT for my patients. Uh, and if you consider that I'm running a specialist dedicated menopause clinic, and this is my, you know, this is what I do. So I have access to medications, to prescriptions, and links to drug companies and pharmacies that many GPs and many generalists will not have, that just shows you how severe the situation is. It's not a sudden event. Looking into it, and I've done a lot of research over the last few weeks, and I'm not happy with what I have found out. I think there has, uh, you know, in the, in the sporting parlance, I think several people have dropped the ball 
uh, and they've dropped the ball big time. And sadly, the, the people who have caused this or the companies and the government departments who've been involved in this, they are not the ones picking up the pieces. They are not the ones on the front line speaking to women, reassuring them, doing their best to get medication for them so they can continue their HRT. That job is left to specialists like myself, to GPs, to practice nurses, many of whom will be out of their depth. It is an absolutely deplorable situation, and in my opinion, it should never have been allowed to develop. There should have been preventative action or remedial action taken months ago. What do we know about what has actually caused this? Well, as you can imagine from the you know the dramatic press releases, there has definitely been a lack of transparency. I've had journalists calling and emailing me asking what's going on, do you know what's going on? And I've spoken to fellow menopause specialists, and many of us feel that we are in the dark. There has not been honesty, there has not been openness and transparency on the part of either the Department of Health or the major drug companies. Particularly, there are two drug companies which I wouldn't say are the cause of the problem, but certainly it is their products which have caused the crisis because they, the, the shortages of supply or in, in some cases it isn't even a shortage, it's a complete lack of supply. This has built up over the last six months, probably longer, and it's difficult to understand why action hasn't been taken. In simple terms, what is meant to happen at, at government level and also within the drug companies is there are specific departments that are designated to look at prescribing trends for key medications, and not just HRT, for example, but it might be prescribing for diabetics, prescribing for statins, hypertension, you know, all common medical conditions. So the trends are closely monitored for obvious reasons. So if there's a sudden dip, that raises concern. And if there's a sudden rise, Equally, that needs monitoring. Now, as I said earlier, specialists like myself have known for easily a year or more, if not 18 to 24 months, that there has been an enormous surge in the demand for women seeking advice and then sometimes seeking to start HRT. That was easily predictable. I am completely unable to understand why that was not picked up by the Department of Health and picked up by companies like Janssen and Mylan and why they did not take appropriate measures to ensure that their production lines, their manufacturing lines were increased to to cope. When you're talking about a company, for example, Janssen, who have a 40% market share, so their particular brand of patches takes 40% of the market. So this is not a niche product. And if their stocks dwindle or uh, deplete completely, anybody can then understand the the crisis that that will cause because these women then have to all move on to another form of HRT, whether that's another patch or a transdermal gel or a tablet. And then that causes this domino effect. And it's the domino effect which has, has caused this disastrous outcome. Can I ask what the repercussions for someone who's been on HRT Mm. and can't get hold of their HRT is? Is it entirely comfort-based or are there some safety implications as well? I 
I think there are very serious implications because you, you would never be recommended to stop HRT suddenly. As with any medication, you wouldn't stop diabetic medication suddenly or thyroid medication. You would always come off very gradually if, if that was the decision. So many of these women are understandably panicking because they literally, are, uh, some of them are down to their last tablet or their last patch and they've been trying to get replacement supplies for weeks. And in my own clinic, a couple of weeks ago, for the very first time in two and a half decades of running menopause clinics, I had to send a handful of women away without being able to prescribe for them. I have never, ever had to do that in my whole career. And yet in one clinic, I had to send a quarter of women that wow. I saw away without... I Physically, I wrote a prescription, but the hospital pharmacy did not have any stock. So that is how difficult the situation has become. So these women were unable to start HRT. And you could argue, well, okay, well, having to delay starting is not perhaps not a disaster. And the focus, I agree, should be on women who are already on medication because if they stop suddenly or even if they have to switch to a different preparation, they are likely to experience rebound symptoms, rebound menopausal symptoms, which in some cases can actually be worse than the initial symptoms these women presented with. So vasomotor symptoms such as flushes and sweat can actually be worse when you suddenly stop HRT than prior to starting it. It's very important that women are aware of that and that they must endeavour to do their best not to, not to suddenly stop. And switching from one brand of patch to a tablet or to another brand of patch, for example, is, is very rarely satisfactory. It's very much a second or third best option. What, what I think the, hasn't really been you know, spread into the public arena is that many women end up on a particular preparation because it suits them. So, for example, they may end up on a particular patch having tried multiple other preparations, other patches, other tablets, uh, and had side effects. So when somebody is established on a treatment, there is a reason for that. No doubt she and her specialist feel that is the best preparation. Yeah. So to suddenly say, oh, you can't have that, you have to go to HRT type A or B or C is, in my view, just completely uh, unreasonable. From the point of view of with Brexit looming, I maybe pre-planned a little bit and thought what would I do if I couldn't get hold of medication and the two places that I've thought well you know number one you try and get it from abroad or number two you try and buy it privately I'm assuming that both of these things are going on with HRT well it's important to say that the crisis that has arisen over the last few weeks is, is, is nothing to do with Brexit there has been some misrepresentation in the media. Oh, oh yeah, I mean, sorry, yes, I tried to put myself in those pla in those women's place. Ironically, Bissan, who who are one of the major manufacturers of really high quality HRT, so body identical natural products, are a French company, and they have reassured uh, specialists like myself that they have huge stocks both in France and in the UK in the event of a no deal Brexit. So this is this this crisis is is separate. I think the answer, as far as Brexit is concerned, is that we we don't really know. There's so much debate in the media. Um, I don't think we really know what will happen to supplies. But on the basis that the vast majority 
uh, of HRT preparations are not manufactured in Europe. They're manufactured largely in the States uh, and some in China. That, that, that Brexit will will not have an impact because it's not part of the you know the single market and the the tariff. Some women on uh, who happen to have been on holiday in Europe and abroad are trying to source their own particular uh, HRT. For example, I have a a patient whose family lives in South Africa and she's been back there on a visit and she's come back armed with a uh, you know half a suitcase of of her patches. I definitely have patients who are who are sourcing patches in Spain and Europe. That's only a short term, yeah. Um, because you know the, the, you, this is a Europe-wide issue. So once the European stocks are depleted, which is is likely to be very soon, then sourcing patches abroad or, or, or tablets or any other type of HRT won't won't be successful. And as far as private prescriptions are concerned, that's no different. Um, there are several online pharmacies who I do deal with, and, and I recommend patients deal with them. They're, you know, they're very reputable sources of supply, and they are all out. They, they have not been able to supply patches, uh, wow. certain brands of patch. Yeah. So even paying uh, a private prescription does not guarantee you the, the medication. So it, it is a genuine European-wide and almost certainly worldwide problem. It's not just the UK. Hey there, you lot. If you're wondering how you can join in on the fun of a live Standard Issue podcast, well, you're in luck because I'm here to tell you our next live show will be at King's Place in London as part of the London Podcast Festival. And we are absolutely chuffed to bits because we will be joined by comedian and disability rights activist Tanya Lee Davis, as well as journalist and co-author of the brilliant Slay in Your Lane, Yomi Adegaki. And that will be on September the 15th. You can find out more information on this and how to get tickets by visiting our website www.standardissuepodcast.com please do get a ticket it's my birthday and i will as the song goes cry if i want to technically it was her party not her birthday but same difference right so can i ask from a point of view of women listening to this if people wanted to apply some pressure somewhere to try and sort this situation out where would that pressure be best applied? I think what will happen in the next few weeks is there will be increased lobbying from support groups such as Diane Danzabrink's Make Menopause Matters campaign and the Lati Lounge, which is, is run by Katie Taylor. You know, there are already pressure groups seeking further information from the Department of Health and from the drug companies, as are the British Menopause Society, who have obviously been very active in all this. And I think if that transparency isn't forthcoming, then I, I think people will start to loop down the freedom of information route, because of course this this all this information should be in the public domain. It's it's not private information. It's information that specialists like myself have an absolute right to see, as as do GPs as do patients. So I do think there will be transparency in the end, but I, I think it's from a professional viewpoint and also on behalf of my patients, I think it's deplorable that it's got to this stage. For example, I um, I emailed the and actually spoke to the Department of Health more than two weeks ago 
sent several urgent emails and I was uh, advised that a member of the relevant team would get back to me. I've heard nothing. There's been no attempt to liaise with specialists like myself. I know other colleagues are in the same position. I think, I mean, I don't want to use the term cover-up, but it, it doesn't sit well. It, you know, if, if nothing has gone wrong and this was unavoidable, then why why are the relevant bodies not being open and, and honest? Given what you know about women's health and the yeah. medical profession, do you feel that somewhere this might be exacerbated by the fact that A, women's health concerns aren't always taken seriously and B, the menopause is one of the least talked about and least understood parts of women's health? Well, it's easy to to think about conspiracy theories. And actually, one of my patients over the weekend did suggest that was was it purely coincidence uh, that the Lancet paper was published at the particular time when HRT shortages are a real issue? I mean, she put two and two together and made five and wondered if this was a you know there was a government conspiracy <laughs> to, to 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 stop women going back on HRT. Now, I mean, of course, that, there's a slightly humorous side to that, and I don't think for one minute that's the case because you know papers go to papers go to press months before. Yeah. It's a fascinating issue from both a political and moral standpoint and a medical standpoint. And I, I can say that there is nothing that I have ever been involved with during my career in both obstetrics and gynaecology that has has attracted as much controversy uh, as, as the menopause. And that's why it's great to be involved in it. You know, there's never a dull minute. You, you know, you get up in the morning and you, don't, you literally don't know what, what's going to happen. And I, and I do think that the Department of Health, and sadly, I have to say to some extent, my own college, the, the RCOG and the RCGP, so that's the body responsible for training and accrediting GPs, I have to say they have taken their eyes off the ball over the last 10 to 15 years. They have not promoted menopause education and training. Patients are still staggered when I tell them that it is not mandatory for a doctor to have any form of menopause training, whether they're going to be a GP or a gynecologist. Really? And, and, and actually, it's the minority who, who get any menopause training because there are so few menopause clinics available, so few gynecologists have any proper menopause training. And, it, and it's gynecologists like myself that train the GPs because they come to do attachments in our hospitals, come to sit in our clinics and learn. For most GPs, there will not be a menopause clinic available for them to attend. And, wow. and that's the status quo. We are hoping it will change. And one, one of the many issues that campaigns like Make Menopause Matters is trying to achieve is to make training mandatory for all doctors, for all junior doctors. So it doesn't matter if they're going to be a GP or a neurosurgeon or a casualty doctor, they will all have to do a mandatory module on the menopause and also hopefully attend at least one menopause clinic. But I think that's a long way away. I'm not saying it's unachievable, but it's certainly not going to happen in the next year or two. We are now dealing with a legacy of the lack of attention that has been given to perimenopausal and menopausal women for decades. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's shocking, and you could, 
you know, you could say, if this issue affected middle-aged men, would it, would it be the same? I, I think that's that's for a debate. But uh, it, I have lived through it. You know, when I did my research in the 90s and 2000s uh, until now, you know, I've been in menopause for three decades. And I have seen the tides turn. I've seen the political response. I've seen and heard disparaging comments from other gynecologists, from my college, from GPs. I mean, a classical comment I had from a GP was, quote, what's all the fuss about? Any idiot can prescribe HRT, quote, unquote. And that was said to me. Blimey. Um, yep. And, and that is, you know, basically, who needs specialists like you? This is so easy to do. It's, it's all a load of nonsense. And actually, you know, I got, my response was, yes, of course, it's easy to prescribe HRT. It's very easy to do it badly. And that is the state of, of play we have. And I think until there is a moral change and there is a, a mindset change amongst the colleges and amongst doctors as a whole, I think we are going to struggle. I think we really are to get, to get menopause to be a mainstream topic. Well, can I ask about the Lancet paper? Because you've mentioned it a few times. I have to put my yeah. hands in the air and say that I haven't had a chance to read it over the weekend. I have mm. seen some things on Twitter, which I'm going yeah. to say weren't the most nuanced views. I was wondering if you'd had time to digest it and you could maybe share your thoughts. What has staggered me about the social media coverage over the weekend is how we've gone from a paper which is discussing the diagnosis of breast cancer in what I believe is an alarmist way, but we'll touch on that in, in a minute, to, to, for example, the Sunday Times article yesterday, which was implying that women were primarily taking HRT to stave off the aging process and to remain eternally young, you know, and that we're talking at polar opposites. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I made it very clear in my response that in all my years of practice, I can't think of more than a handful of women, if that, who have even mentioned the aging process when we have a discussion about HRT. It's about genuine health issues, psychological and physical. It's about family and personal relationships breaking down. It's about their inability to work. And of course, we know that women make up perimenopausal, menopausal women make up a massive part of the workforce now and, and will continue to do so. So I think we need to forget about the cosmetic side. Um, that, that is a distraction. And if we start saying that women are taking HRT to remain young and they may get breast cancer, that is such a negative message. It's appalling. So sticking to the facts, I have to say there's been some very good medical coverage. Uh, I think Professor Michael Baum who is a very renowned um, oncoplastic breast surgeon, he's a cancer specialist, has practiced for decades, has been very vocal in the media. And I think his analysis, as somebody who's not a menopause specialist, I mean, this is what I, uh, what I really appreciate about somebody from another specialty coming in in a supportive way. He, he's a breast surgeon. He deals with breast cancer. That's his, that's his life's work. And he has very correctly commented on the alarmist headlines, the way that the paper was published, uh, and the lack of balanced discussion in, in the paper itself. And I would agree with every comment that he has made. I, I think w what's important is to look at overall mortality causes. 
um, so that's overall mortality, because that is what women are interested in. When I see women in clinic, they want to know, is there anything that can prolong their lives and also improve quality of life? And the simple to answer to that is HRT. All the studies have shown that HRT prolongs lives substantially, largely because of a reduction in cardiovascular disease, with death rates dropping by up to 50%, which is a staggering figure. And there's nothing that women can do that will reduce their death rates by 50%. Losing weight, stopping smoking, exercising more, they're all great. And, And, of course, I would recommend that my patients do all of the above, but that in itself will not reduce your cardiovascular death rates. And one, I think one of the major flaws in this paper is it purely talks about incidence of breast cancer. There's no end point. It doesn't explain whether those women died of breast cancer or whether they survived and had very healthy lives. And it does not at any stage talk about benefits and mortality reduction that HRT causes. So it's very unbalanced from that point of view. And I think that is, a, you know, without being too dramatic, I think that is a fatal flaw in the paper. And that's what makes it alarmist. One more question. If we've got listeners out there who are unable to get their HRT, I wonder, do you have any advice for them of how to cope? Well, I would say don't give up. Firstly, don't stop suddenly and don't give up. If women are on patches and they are getting desperate, then they can cut the patches up to try and eke out the supplies they've got. The beauty about patches is they're very flexible. You can cut them into a half, into a quarter, and they will still work. Tablets, obviously, it's much harder to do that. But there are little ways around the issue if they literally are about to to run out. So stopping suddenly is not a good idea. If their GP is unable to help, then what I am recommending to my patients currently is that before setting off to collect a prescription, I recommend that they contact five to ten pharmacies locally, either near their home or near their work, and speak to them before going in to check that they have the prescription or a similar prescription that could be collected. What I found is that some patients got so desperate, they literally got in their car and and drove around for five or six hours, spending ages going around pharmacies to be told there were no supplies, and that's clearly not sustainable. So I would phone ahead. If that doesn't work, then I would ask for a local referral to a menopause specialist, either on the NHS or, if needs be, privately. And the GPs and women can look at the British Menopause Society menopause map, which is widely available on the internet. You don't need to log in. You don't need an access code. You can just Google it. And that has details of all the accredited menopause specialists in the UK and the clinics they run. Now, that that is not going to be a quick fix because most specialists have a waiting list of weeks to months and many NHS clinics have waiting lists of eight to ten months which are very lengthy but it's a backup plan and you know if your GP or practice nurse is not able to help then I think you need to have a plan B. If all else fails then you women may have to switch to an alternative product but there may come a time when even the alternative supplies are are depleted. 
currently, as far as I'm aware, the transdermal gel that I mentioned earlier that is in the podcast that's made by Bassan is still available. And I would, for women who cannot get patches, I would recommend the gel uh, as an alternative because it's an identical hormone. It's still given through the skin and it can have a very similar effect to patches. So that would be a, another another option. So right. I think there is, there's a strategy but it will take a bit of effort to you know to try and obtain a, a good good quality product. And write to your MP, presumably, and apply some pressure. Firstly, write to your MP. Secondly, write to the Department of Health. Thirdly, join campaigns like Make Menopause Matters, which is still taking signatories. I think we've got nearly forty thousand signatories. Um, that's headed up by Diane Danzebrink. So definitely be vocal. Uh, and I think that the more noise that's made, the, the better. I, I think we need to, we mustn't sit back and and listen to the bad news. I think we've got to remain positive. And, and I do, you know, looking more positively, and you have to take a positive from things like this, I do hope that the crisis with availability and the breast cancer crisis makes women seek high-quality advice and treatment. I think it's very important that women should understand that all HRT is not equal. There are brands, there are products, there are routes of administration that are much better than others. There are different progestogens. Some are safer uh, and have a much better risk profile than others. That's one thing that the Lancet paper did highlight. Uh, And this degree of of individualization of HRT may need to be carried out by a a specialist rather than perhaps somebody who has no menopause training. So I think if women use it as an opportunity to seek advice and perhaps optimize their HRT, then something good will have have come out of the, the crisis. Thanks so much, Anne. This has been really, really interesting. Great. Is there a way that people can get in touch with you if they want to find out more about you and your campaigning? Yes, if you, I'm on Twitter, um, Gynae Expert. So if people Google my name um, on Twitter, I'm very vocal. Uh, sometimes <laughs> perhaps too too so. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, but you know you've got to. I'm I'm at a stage in my career now where I don't have to to answer to anyone, and I, I, if I think something's wrong, I am very happy to be vocal. People can shoot me down. I'm happy to stand up for my for my views. Um, I have a website also, which again is Gynae Expert, which is undergoing an, an upgrade, but I think you can still get on to the older version. I'm also on Instagram, and you know, if anybody wants to contact my secretary, um, they can message me via Twitter, and I can pass it on, or they can contact, if they can get on to my Gynae Expert website, there is a link to make contact with my, with my team. So I'm I'm pretty contactable. Brilliant. <laughs> Standard issue for all women.